0: It's good to see you. My name is Luke. If I haven't met you yet, I look forward to maybe meeting you after the service. Merry Christmas, by the way. We are on the home stretch. So listen, as you talk to each other about airport security, I'm 40 years old. I'm about to sound like I'm an 80 year old, but I'm only 40. I remember a time when you can get your luggage out of the back of your car and almost, almost walk right up to the gate. I mean, it wasn't that long ago. I caught myself thinking about this here recently. I've been flying a lot this fall, and I was doing that two-minute drill. That's the drill that you're doing where you're trying to put your shoes back on at the end of the conveyor belt, where you're putting your belt on with the other hand and shoving your laptop in the bag. and. Those bins are all starting to pile up on each other, and people you don't even know are getting dressed around you, and you're grabbing your wallet. You're, you're sure it's your wallet, maybe not the guys next to you. It's just all of your precious stuff are spread out in these not-so-clean bins, and you're half-dressed, and you can't have any fluids over three ounces. I mean, it's just a total mess, and I remember thinking in my mind, how did it get this way? How did it get this way? We all know how it got that way. Violence had spread to the skies. Right. Since the forties and the fifties, you started seeing some more activity in the, um, the airways. You would see hijackings, you'd see bombings, you'd see other things. And there was always a response. And every time something happened on a plane, the industry would try to kind of get in work to get in front of it the next, the next time. So if you go all the way back to 1969, 1969 is when metal detectors were added to airports, right? That same year they were training ticket agents on how to spot suspicious behavior. Are they sweating profusely? Are they not very considerate of the other people around them? Are they not considering their own bags? Are they kind of just standoffish? How do they look? A year after that, they started adding air marshals. Two years after that, they started having drug-sniffing hounds and dogs all over the airport. 1974, they started adding machines to x-ray your carry-on. Several years after that, they added x-ray machines to scan and to look inside of your checked baggage. And then in 2001, we all know what happened. 2001 was a very pivotal year when it came to airport security. That was the advent of the TSA, right? 60,000 government employees were hired by the TSA. It's the largest swing of government employment since World War II. And that's when we started seeing wands and pat downs and body imaging screens and things like that. I mean, it really was pretty crazy. And then in 2006, you couldn't bring fluids over three ounces. You'd have to start taking your belt off and your shoes off. This last time I had to take my sweater off, right? I mean, it is really a different place. You know why? It's because we live in a violent world. We live in a violent world. I'm not sure it's more violent than it was 2,000 or 3,000 or 5,000 years ago. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's the same level of violentness. but we're able to track it now. We're able to measure and compile statistics. And I think it makes it feel like things are always trending up. But when you look on the graphs, it doesn't always look like it's trending up. You know, every year the FBI comes out with an annual report on violent crimes reported in the United States. Now we don't have the 2016 numbers yet, we'll probably get that in several months, but in 2015 there were 1.2 million reported violent crimes. 1.2 million, It's by the FBI. So 16,000 of those were murders. 55,000 of them involved a gun or was some sort of gun violence. We realized this year that last year over half of all teenagers and adolescents were being bullied online and that every minute 20, people are being violated domestically, some sort of domestic abuse, whether it be physical or verbal or both. This is in America alone. Now, if you were to open up the search globally, it would probably blow your mind. I'm sure it would blow my mind. We're just a violent people and we live in a very violent world. But when you go online, you will also see a long Rolodex of 501c3s, And ministries and agencies and institutions that are really bent on and resolved to solving this thing called violence. As if it was like a riddle or a long division problem or something like that. So they'll do anything. They'll do all kinds of research and data collection. They'll put models together. They are resolved on finding how do we keep dads from hitting moms? How do we keep kids from bringing guns to school? They want to solve it. How do we fix violence? You know, I think the path that is most often tread when it comes to trying to solve violence, I think it begins with reasoning and education. Where culture wants to reason with the violent and maybe educate the violent on not being so violent. I think the thinking goes, if we just show people how hurtful it is to others, whenever you are violent, then maybe they will choose not to be so hurtful. That's why we see these public service announcements, these PSAs that are jam-packed with Hollywood A-listers, right? Because maybe if Matt Damon says that body shaming is not cool, or Jennifer Lawrence says that you shouldn't bully somebody online, well, man, I mean, they're cool, and I like them, and I just saw them in a movie, and after all, I didn't know that body shaming was that big of a deal, so now I guess I won't do it anymore but there's still violence. It, it doesn't really work. Classes are designed by high schools and colleges to bring attention to things that are hurtful, violent things that could be hurtful to others, but there's still violence. Judges, they prescribe classes for the angry to keep them from being so angry and to keep them from being so violent, but violence, it continues. And so because reasoning doesn't work and education won't work, We move to policy and legislation to prevent it because if we can't keep people from doing it by reason that we have to keep people from doing it by law. That's why you see a lot of law and a lot of provocative news that are going around like, like things like how many bullets can you put in a magazine legally magazine capacity, right? Or social media um, policies on college campuses or airport security, right? Because when violent people won't be reasoned with, laws have to be added and implemented. But with all of our education and all of our reasoning and all of our social media work and our loud voices and our popularity and our firm laws and our best attempts and our most noble motives, with all of it put together, we still have violence and a lot of it. It's forever, really. I mean, it stretches its arm all the way back to the very first murder. There's a fratricide where Cain murdered Abel. It's the first real violent act that we see. It reaches its arm all the way back. And then it reaches its arm all the way in the future, where I'm sure in years we'll still be arguing over how many weeks it's called an abortion and how many weeks it's called a medical procedure. I mean, it's hate and it's violence. It's been around. And I think with all the people we have in this room right now, I think we can all agree that the next president is not going to fix it. The last president didn't fix it. Six presidents from now won't fix it. No president can fix all the violent acts, even in this country. The next military campaign is not going to stop terrorism forever. Terrorists will always pop up. They are one block away from you. (laughs) They're everywhere. The next viral campaign with an A-lister, Is not going to stop domestic abuse because when dads and husbands get angry, they don't care what Captain America or Brad Pitt say. They're going to have their way. PSAs aren't going to work. And even though I think we all know the uselessness of just putting our heads together, I think there's still a piece of us that just wants to put our heads together. I mean, we're all smart. If we just kind of pull our our ingenuity and we pull our innovation and our brilliance, we can come up with, with, with a way of stopping this thing called violence. But if this could work, how come it hasn't already? Here's a better question. Why are we so violent anyway? Why do we do violent things? Because we're violent. I'm violent. You're violent. Why are we violent with each other? Warring against each other with our words, warring against each other with our fists, with our deeds, even with our thoughts. So today we get to finish this look at Jesus's advent, Jesus's coming, and Christmas leads us to see a baby in a manger who will end violence. He'll end it. This thing that we've never even been able to get our arms around, he's going to end it. He ends it corporately, and he will end it individually. So look in your Bible at Isaiah 9. We're going to read the same passage that's been leading us for the last three weeks. This will be the the final name. We've looked at a baby with four names. In this Advent series this year, in Isaiah 9, verse 2, I'll read it with you. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you, as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden and the staff of staff for his shoulder the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of midian for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire for as to us a child is born to us a child is given So today we get to look at the Prince of Peace, right? Which is by far the most popular name for Jesus in this passage in Isaiah. I mean, it has definitely got the most curbside appeal of all four names. This would be the only name Starbucks would even be willing to consider putting on its red cups. Prince of Peace, right? Because everybody's against violence. Everybody wants violence to end. And if you have a plan for peace, you're going to get universal applause every single time, right? It's very PC. I mean, we sing it when we go caroling. When we go, (laughs) I don't go caroling. When you go caroling, right? When you go door to door like a weird person with your friends with coats on in front of their house and sing to their house. When you do that, you may sing a song that says, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Peace on earth, peace on earth and mercy mild. But, But answer me. How does Jesus, how does baby Jesus, how does the Prince of Peace coming to mankind stop a mass shooting? How? How does that happen? How does Jesus coming as the Prince of Peace stop you from flipping out on your food server today for being wrong yet again? Or flipping off the person driving in front of you on the interstate because they're on their phone? How does baby Jesus as the Prince of Peace coming to mankind stop that? There's a great passage that I think goes along well with this. We're going to look at it in James 4. In fact, if you have a Bible and you want to turn to James 4, you could probably stay there today and do real well. You don't have to go back to Isaiah repeatedly. But in, in James, we see a great question and then a great answer. James says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? There it is. Why the violence, James asks. Why the violence? Answer, is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. So what James is saying is, why do you bully and bomb and mock and throw punches and cut with your words and steal and murder? Why do you do these things? Very simple. You have hungers and passions inside of you that are starving to death and have not been met. In other words, we have war around us because we have war within us. Very simple. Very simple. We have internal violence we cannot solve, so it turns to outward violence. We have angst and alienation inside, so we externalize it, and we tear the world apart because we can't have what we want to have. We have passions that won't be met. We have hungers that remain hungry I think if you break down all of the FBI's 1.2 million violent acts behind them, you will find 1.2 violent, angst, warring inside people. People who are struggling, unsatisfied souls, 1.2 million of them at least. From neighbors cussing at each other to a suicide bomb and everything in between. We want, but we do not have. So I want you to consider this context again. Now we've looked at the context of Isaiah the last three weeks, I'm just gonna remind you. Isaiah prophesying to Judah. Judah is watching as an enemy power is sweeping through the land and scooping up everybody. No one can stand in their way. They're just destroying nations and cleansing culture left and right, left and right, right? Even, Even the most powerful of them, Israel to their north, gone. Israel will never be the same again after this, gone. So what do they need? They need a peacemaker. They need a peacemaker. Eugene Peterson wrote a Bible translation called the message. It's not a very literal translation at all. It's what we would call a paraphrase, but I like how he says verses four and five in Isaiah, because it starts to feel wooden in what we just read earlier. He says this, the abuse of oppressors and cruelty of tyrants. All their whips and clubs and curses is gone, done away with. The boots of all those invading troops, along with their shirts, soaked with innocent blood, will be piled in a heap and burned a fire that will burn for days. What exactly is God saying through Isaiah to Judah? God is saying all violence will end. All violence will end. Christmas actually marks the beginning of this end. Right. Now, this might sound kind of unhelpful for you right now, but I want you to remember that before God brought peace to you and me in the person of Jesus, we were all alienated and enemies of God. We were against God. We were violent with our hands and hostile towards God. So that's how the Prince of Peace finds us, wandering, a violent people, an unwound people, an unsatisfied people, violent within ourselves, violent with others hungers, and passions that are inflamed, yet starved, wanting, not having, hungering, not getting. And because we don't know what to do with our passions and our hungers, because we don't know what to do, we let the culture minister to us and lead us and suppose some answers for us. This is why you can't watch a movie today without there being a character, a key character, With angst, warring inside, angst, difficulties, right? Passions that aren't being met, hungers that aren't being fed, alienated, cut. They're everywhere. This is how we like it. It resonates with us. That's why we don't like movies so much that have a hero that is not flawed, even a little bit. We even want our heroes flawed. You know, I looked at the top 25 highest grossing movies of all time and they all have a key character with unmet internal passion and angst. They all ward within, every single one of them. Batman. He's angsty, isn't he? Frodo. He's angsty for many hours, Frodo is, right? Elsa. Put Elsa's face up there. Look at her angry face, right? Look at that face. Unsatisfied, right? Totally rude to Olaf who didn't do anything except sing and dance around and do stupid stuff, right? And look at that face. Think of your five favorite songs. Put the lyrics down to your five favorite songs and read through them and see if you don't see someone getting dumped, left, there being some angst, some unsatisfaction, hunger's not getting met. Johnny Cash made a career out of this, did he not? Look at your your Netflix queue. All those shows have key characters that are full of angst. YouTube, pregnant with videos, with road rage, or anger compilations, or people just ranting, just for the sake of ranting. So yes, Western pop culture, it can imitate angst and being unsatisfied. It could depict it, but can it minister to it? I mean, can it solve it? I mean, it tries, doesn't it? It tries to solve our angst. It tries to solve that hunger and that passion that's not getting fed. It always looks a little bit like you got to get the girl first, or you got to get the guy first, or you got to get the job first, or the recognition, or money will bring you peace inside, or power will bring you peace inside. Value, comfort, worth, security, glory, these things. It's the American dream. That's how you quiet the war within. It's the American dream. If you get what the American dream is, then the flurry will stop. The angst and the alienation will go away. But this sad episode's already been played out. We see Solomon speaking directly to this in Ecclesiastes. Now, we're not going to read these first two chapters of Ecclesiastes. I can't wait till we go through it as a church, go through the book. But I'm going to summarize the first two chapters for you real quickly. It is Solomon, angsty inside, unsatisfied, hungers, passions, looking for peace, can't get it. And he says, I know what I'll do. I will get all the knowledge in the world. If there's something to be known, I will know it. And then the war will stop. It will be quiet. And then I will have peace. But it doesn't work. So he says, "Okay, then what I will do is I will act wisely and I will walk uprightly and I'll do all the right stuff. And then the war will stop within and I will feel peace finally. But then that doesn't work, does it? So he says, I know what I'll do. I'll work. I'll overwork and then I'll overwork on top of that and I'll achieve and I'll achieve and I'll achieve more and more and more. And then the war inside will stop and I'll have peace. But it doesn't work. He says, I know what I'll do. I'll indulge myself and accumulate stuff as much as I can, and then then it's got to work. I'll stop and quiet the war within, and then I'll have peace. But he keeps coming back to the same statement, all is vanity and striving after wind. He still has that angst He still has that violence, that warring inside of him. He couldn't quiet the noise, even though he was living the American dream long before there was an America. He had all the power and all the finances in the world. He could have anything he wanted. And still, he had no peace. I think if he was alive today, quieting the war within him would look like getting the newest device. And as soon as the new device came, you'd throw away the one you just got and get the newest one. Maybe you get six master's degrees. Maybe you get three PhDs, right? You could do anything. Maybe you just improve your behavior. Maybe you become a social media star, food, self-help, better body, better job. I think he'd still come to the same conclusion. All is vanity and striving after wind. So Western culture is wrong. Pop culture is wrong. It understands angst. It can depict it. It could play it out, but it, it, it can't fix it. It can't say anything to it. It can't minister to the warring that we have within. Solomon said as much. And it was supposed to lead us to the prince of peace, the one who stops angst and brings quiet to the war that we have within. Let me explain. Look at Colossians 1. We'll have it up on the screen. Don't worry about turning there. But in Colossians 1, Paul speaks to a church, and he says this, for in him, him meaning Jesus, just to build the context before this, for in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven making what? Peace. By the blood of his cross. So the blood of the cross is what makes the peace. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. That's warring within, warring out. Warring inside, warring outside. Right? In hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So this is, this is what Paul is saying. Jesus has become peace to the hostile, right? Peace to you and me, the hostile, by accepting God's hostility towards sin. God has hostility towards sin. That's part of the gospel, believe it or not. That's a different sermon. But it's part of the good news that God hates sin. God has hostility towards sin, and mankind deserves this hostility because we are full of sin, but Jesus affords us peace by absorbing that hostility at our hostile hands. It's almost too good to be true, and the angels could see this happening. The angels could see the beginning of this. That's why it says in Luke two, glory to God in the highest. This is a choir of angels, glory to God in the highest and what on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So, so a ramification of the gospel, In effect of the gospel is that when Jesus is peace to us and quiets our storm, then we have peace around us. No more warring within. No more warring without. No more hostile in the mind. No more evil with our deeds. Peace on earth only happens when those who walk the earth have peace. That's how bombings stop. Shootings, fists will stop flying. Words will quit flying. It's when we have peace inside of us. We war because inside we are at war. And inside we feel an alienation and an angst. Think about it just even this week for you. When money is tight, do you find yourself short with those around you? Angst within, angst without, right? When you've had a long week, a long day, and you just wanna get home and have some peace, is that not when we find ourselves flipping out on people around us that are gonna stand in our way and keep us from having that peace? Angst within, angst without. You see, the bad news before the good news is that before Jesus comes to radically rescue us, he finds us at war with him. Enemies, rebellious enemies against God. We don't typically think about this. We typically think that whenever God comes to rescue us, he's rescuing you or he's rescuing you and me from neutrality. He's pulling us from neutrality because we're not really bad, but we understand we're not really good, so we need him to rescue us. But friends, listen, when he comes into our own little rock fight, we have rocks in our hands. We're throwing them at each other and at him. He catches us as oppressors, aggressors, and rebellious. And God, let me say it again, God hates sin. Not only does he hate sin, he crushes it. He crushes sin. But instead of crushing sin, sin in you, in me, he crushes sin in his own son, who stands in our place as a peace offering, a gift. It's the first Christmas gift, the first real one, a peace offering for you and for me. This is what the Bible calls propitiation. It's a long word, all it means is this, removal of wrath by the giving of a gift. Removal of wrath by the offering and the giving of a gift. It's the stopping of hostility. It's the stopping of wrath by offering something, and that is what we see in the cross. Isaiah 53, it says it this way. Same prophet, same 700 years earlier. He says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. The cross is the scene of the greatest Christmas gift ever given an offering, a peace offering made to stop wrath. I know it's Christmas time, and I know it must feel like I just grabbed this Christmas message and took a, a hard left turn and took it to this really morose place. <laughs> but listen, Christmas only exists so that there could be a Good Friday and an Easter. It's the only way it makes sense. Peace coming to earth through a baby makes no sense unless God is crushing sin on the cross and defeating death in an empty hole in the ground. That's the only reason Christmas is even here. It's the only reason we even have anything to celebrate. It's the only reason we have trees in our house giving gifts, sing songs. That's it. It points to the gospel. Other than that, it makes absolutely no sense. And this gospel is what gives us peace inside. It's what quiets that war. It's how angst is extracted from our lives. Jesus absorbed hostility so you and I could absorb peace. He absorbed that hostility so you and I could absorb peace. This is how Paul says it in Ephesians. He says, for he himself is our peace. Who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That's interesting language, the dividing wall of hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. So this dividing wall of hostility comes down. It crumbles between enemies and those enemies become friends. A peace treaty is literally made by the Prince of Peace himself for you and for me within each other and with God who we were at war with. So this is how we apply this. When you and I are satisfied in this good news, those propitious, peace-offering good news, no longer any guilt, no longer anything to be crushed in me or crushed in you, when we love this good news, all of our hungers, all of our passions are met in the angst releases. I don't have angst anymore. My passions are met. My hungers aren't starving. I am what they call satisfied when that happens. That means when you're satisfied and your hungers are met and your passions are met, you don't have to punch the wall anymore. You don't have to throw things. You don't have to break things. You don't have to bomb things. You don't have to say things. Because you're met and satisfied. The alienation inside is over. The angst inside has lifted there's a couple of examples of what I'm talking about, what you see when it's gone wrong and what you can see when the gospel collides with it. Let's look at spouse abuse just for a minute, right? Spouse abuse, there's a lot of different reasons for why it happens, but a lot of times it's a matter of control or glory and control. One spouse is not feeling control over the situation or a level of glory, so they flip out. They start punching or abusing with their words. But what if the gospel collides with that, and that hunger to be in control is satisfied, because God's so in control already, and you're just resting in His arms. No, you're not in control, but He's in control. And what if that need for glory and that passion that we have for glory, what if it's met because we don't even care about it anymore? We're so intoxicated with the glory of God Himself that we don't need to be glorious. He's glorious in our stead. And in that, we're satisfied not so much of a need to start punching and swinging and abusing. What about hate crimes, bullying, even racism? You know, they don't look like they have very much in common, but they all start to go back to some of the same tree trunk like areas because the real reason that there is social media bullying and the real reason we see hate crimes is because people, the aggressors, the violent ones, they don't feel valuable. They don't feel like they can do anything to make themselves feel accepted and worthy and valuable. So the best way to do it is to devalue somebody else. And if you could devalue an entire people group, or you can devalue somebody on a status post, then you'll feel a little bit better about yourself. You'll feel a little bit more valuable. But what happens when the gospel slams into something like that? When the Prince of Peace becomes true and real, tangible in our lives? then we know how valued we are. We're actually so valuable that a propitious offering and gift was made to keep wrath from landing on you and me. It was, that's how valuable you are. You're as valuable to God. I mean, you are incredibly treasured by God. And when you are satisfied with that, you don't depend on others to see you a certain way. You don't need to obliterate entire people groups to make yourself feel better. You don't have to measure yourself up against anybody. See, if you were to reverse this, let's just reverse it just for a moment. Where is it in your life? Big question. Where is it in your life where you are feeling the most angst? You have passions that aren't being satisfied, hungers that aren't being met. Where is that? It might not take very long to consider it. Is somebody or something standing in your way? That is what you'll be violent with. That is where your violence will land. Kids, spouse, boss, person driving in front of you, that's where your violence will land. And that violence reveals that you have a very difficult time believing that this gospel is really as true as God says it is. It just isn't clicking. You're just not believing that something brings ultimate peace besides Jesus. You see, violence is a symptom, like a a fever is a symptom, or an ache or a pain is a symptom. Violence is really a symptom of disbelief that anything radical really happened on the cross. It's It's a disbelief that anything really true happened in an empty tomb. I mean, yeah, they happened, but they didn't have any value. They weren't real, at least not real for me. Therefore, I'm violent, I'm violent. But a bloody cross in an empty grave shows that angst is silenced and you are free to be disrespected. You're free to be wronged, you're free to be ignored, you're free to be left behind, you're free to be hurt, you're free. You don't have to demand those things anymore. You have to consider that today. When we're worshiping today, ask the Holy Spirit to show you what areas of unrest you have, where you're still warring within. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you navigate those areas of unmet passions and unmet hungers. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you where you disbelieve. Yes, we need to repent for angry and violent acts. Of course we do. But we also have to repent for the disbelief that's causing it. Don't just repent for the fruit on the tree. Repent for the branch behind it. There is a sin of anger and violence, but there's a sin behind the sin. We have to repent for both. You know, one day, one day there will be no more identity theft, no more carjackings or animal attacks, no more pressure cooker bombs, no more bar fights, no more hate crimes. I mean, think about that. No more violence. We, we read the news. We see I mean, if you're at the zoo and a gorilla jumps over the fence today, a violent act's going to happen, but there will be a day where the gorilla's just going to start talking to you and give you a high five. No violence. He's not going to maul you. No, no, no more people hitting each other. No more. It, it's all going to stop, just like Isaiah said. Just like he said. You know, this is what communion's message is. I mean, communion's a very beautiful thing, and a whole series could be done on what communion really is for you and me as a sacrament, but it's also a meal of peace. You see, back in the old ancient world, whenever enemies would fight, what ratified a peace agreement was a lot of times just having a meal with each other, because if I'm eating, I'm not fighting you. We've slowed down, we've come together, I'm putting down my implements of war to pick up food. It was a piece of fellowship that said we were enemies, but now we are friends. So communion, what we celebrate as communion, is a very unique table, because food will ratify peace. Except in our case, we dine with the one who supplied the food himself. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of the Prince of Peace absorbing wrath at a great cost to give us rest and remove our angst. Go ahead and stand with me. I'm going to read with you, and then I would like to pray just briefly over you. We're about to worship, and when we worship, as I just said, there will be communion in the back. And uh, you could take it with your family, take it with your roommates. And it's just something we do as a church. If you're not a Christian, we'd love to pray with you instead. Don't worry about taking communion. We would love to just pray for you and your heart and how you see the Lord. I'd love to read this for you in Isaiah 11. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goats and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. How do we know this? Isaiah told us of the increase of this baby's government and of the peace, there will be no end, no end. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you that you have come to eradicate violence. We as a people, as mankind, we don't even know where to start. We can't do it. We can't fix violence. All we could do is just be dirty people doing dirty things to each other. We're just very violent people. This is because we war within. Enemies to ourselves, enemies to those around us. We tear up our own lives. We tear up the world around us until you come. And you stopped it all. The Prince of Peace. Beginning a government with no end. Where everyone that was hostile together will not be hostile towards each other anymore. And you have done this by taking wrath off of us. A justified wrath. Lord, for you are just to show justice against wrath. You are right to be angry. You are right to crush sin. And you are good to us that you've done it in your son. Father, that we would ask ourselves not just where we're violent, not just where we have angst and unmet hungers and passions, but we would ask ourselves where we just don't believe that you're good enough. We don't believe that you're great enough. You're glorious enough. You're gracious to us. Well, we don't believe that you are enough. So we must be satisfied by other things. And because we don't have those other things, we war. So, Lord, as we live in a very, very, very contentious world, lots of trigger fingers just on this globe that, that we walk. But, Father, I know that all of that will continue until the war inside is stopped. But I thank you that you say that there will be a day where we put down all of our implements of war, all of the garments of war, and they will all be burned. They will all stop. You are so good to us. And when we worship you today, Father, we're worshiping you as God who has stopped violence. Thank you for being kind. Thank you for being a Prince of Peace. Thank you for starting something on Christmas that would land on a cross in an empty grave. And thank you for coming back to get us once again, showing us, even beautifully in your passage, how there will be no such thing as violence ever again. We love you, Father. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.